0: Welcome to One Haas, a podcast devoted to bringing the Haas community closer together through your stories. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and my mission is to help open our eyes to the network we never knew we had. Today, I'm joined by David Corfield of the full-time MBA 2019 class. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Great to be here. David, I actually met you, I believe, in this room in Shoe Hall, probably M317, I think. You guys were occupying this room right before I had to do a podcast. and Or I think maybe it was afterwards. I,
1: I can't remember if I kicked you out or you kicked me I out. I think no. maybe you guys kicked me out.
0: <laughs> the point is that uh, as you guys were kicking me out, I asked you a little bit about you know, what you guys were up to. And mm. you were telling me about the startup that you guys have been working on for the past year. And as an entrepreneur, I was just thoroughly fascinated. But before we dive into that, let's kind of hear a little bit about your background, where you're from, where your accent is from. Yes, (laughs) I get that question
1: quite frequently. Mostly the Trader Joe's, it seems. But yeah, I grew up in a town called Chelmsford, which is about an hour outside of London. It's in Essex, which if any if anyone's heard of The Only Way is Essex, is a TV show that's sort of like Jersey Shore. Mm-hmm. So there's uh there's a reputation that I people from my county have had.
0: Okay. Um, for the last maybe 10 years. I just want to say, for any listeners, David is not jacked or has a <laughs> spray tan. <tanned>. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. They're the two. They're the two. So yeah, I grew up there, then went to went to university. In Bristol, mm-hmm. so in the west of something, which in many ways is the Berkeley of England. Okay. Uh, I think that's why I feel such an affinity here. It's sort of the alternative place, like farthest left leaning, most likely city to have a protest. Right. Like, there's a lot of similarities <laughs> um, which which make Berkeley feel like home for me. Right. Um, I had a fantastic undergrad experience there. I didn't spend too much time studying in mm-hmm. Bristol. I spent most of my time actually running the basketball club. Okay, I'm one of the 34 British people that played and loved basketball. Wow. And yeah, I spent two of my three years there running the basketball club because college sports in the UK have got quite a long way to catch up with uh-huh. uh, Americans, so <laughs> I could actually manage the entire club. And that was uh, quite a big role, um, wow. completely. Well, no, we had funding from the university, but there's a lot of work to do. It was maybe 20, 25 hour week commitment
0: for me and that's wow that's a lot
1: yeah it was but I mean what did you study
0: there University of Bristol
1: I studied economics and management and so that came from an interest in business but also an interest in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. from when I was younger so when I was 16 I think at high school I started my first company which is called folder monkey which still haunts me to this day. Photo, sort of photo monkey. Folder
0: monkey. Oh, folder monkey. Yes. Okay.
1: it's a, It was a school supplies company mm-hmm. that provided, uh, like tailored, folder systems, okay. to high school students. All right. So, say you're studying for a math class, you would have your folder that had dividers in it for calculus and trigonometry mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all of that, all that stuff that you go through as a high school student, and it did really well. But there was a big government regulation that came in just as I was graduating high school that said, nope. for whatever policy reason, the big exam boards in the UK couldn't be seen to be having this sort of like rote learning that we were sort of promoting. Hmm. Sort of these are the bullet points from the syllabus you need to know. Mm-hmm. And there's a big push to sort of big holistic learning from the government. I see. So my go big or go home strategy of like going directly to the education boards and saying look i've got this great product let's partner together yeah I'll, like license it i got shut down immediately interesting and accused of copyright breaching as well wow so um i that's gotta give you a process go there ask for ask for forgiveness later yeah yeah so uh, i left that with some learnings and yeah i went to went to bristol knowing that i wanted to learn about sort of the more academic side of management and economics mm-hmm but very quickly found that I wasn't a very academically minded person <laughs> and wanted to get straight back to that practical side. Right, and, right. And uh, the, running the basketball club was a nice blend of like, the entrepreneurial nature of owning something and having the freedom to mm-hmm. take it in whatever direction you want with still a bit of structure and the social side that comes with that.
0: Like Absolutely, team yeah. What led you to uh, McKinsey afterwards?
1: Uh, the the well trodden path I think of <laughs> economics and management majors I had no idea who McKinsey were or what management consulting was maybe even for the first six months I was at university to be honest mm-hmm. I so I grew up in a, a well first part of my childhood I grew up in a small village mm. and my all my family on my mum's side were all teachers my dad was a chef then a salesperson mm-hmm. they they didn't have much knowledge of sort of big corporate world in London. And and so, yeah, when I told my mom that I had an internship in in a management consulting firm, she didn't really know what that was. (laughs) This part she still doesn't understand to this day, I don't think. But uh, yeah, it was. it became pretty quickly for me, like in the recruiting process through that degree, that management consulting or investment banking Mm -hmm. were the two paths that sort of, checked my need to want to go into the city, have uh, like a steep learning curve out of undergrad. Right. And then I realized how little investment bankers sleep. Mm -hmm. And then my decision was kind of made. (laughs) And yeah, so I did an internship with McKinsey in my final summer. Had an amazing time, like too good a time. When they gave me the offer at the end... I went back into the office to ask people for their worst possible experiences. Because I didn't, I honestly didn't feel like my summer set me up for like what realistic life would be there. Yeah. I was just one of those lucky ones that has this amazing project over the summer, which isn't how they structure the internship. Mm-hmm. Like I know a lot of firms that try and paint this rosy picture to their interns. So that yeah. they, all the interns come back and then they're like, oh, and actually this is what real life is like here. Yeah, yeah. It sucks. Um, so because he doesn't do that, but I just happened to be lucky. And but yeah, it, it, it took some thought before committing to that. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I went back for just about two years after, after graduation. So actually
0: I actually have a personal question. I come, after coming to business school, my, my brother is, uh, he's about to graduate his, he's a senior, he's about to graduate his undergraduate degree in economics as well. Mm-hmm. And I, while he was in his junior year, I was exposed to consulting for the first time myself as well through the MBA. And I advised him to go into consulting. So that's what he's going into this September, I guess. Great. One of the things I hear from you know, some classmates that were consultants is that going in as an undergrad, the first year is kind of just, you're just sitting in the background. You're not really that involved. I'm kind of curious what your experience was like your first year. Was it very hands-on or was it just shadowing people? my experience was probably the complete opposite of that Mm. i was thrown
1: too much into the fire that's great i think for my personal preference in (laughs) in hindsight it was an amazing experience right right and that's where a lot of the learning opportunity comes from It's just Mm -hmm. being pushed outside of your comfort zone and figuring out how to deal with it
0: yeah did you have
1: to travel much i put my foot down Mm -hmm. at the very start and said i pretty much refuse international travel you pretty much get one card to play when you you show up. And I knew that was going to be mine because I couldn't handle the waking up at 4 a.m. on a Monday morning to fly to some strange industrial town outside of Amsterdam for the week. That was not my idea of fun. So I said, I'm only doing UK-based projects. Mm -hmm. That... Sadly then meant that they sent me to the most remote parts of the UK <laughs> that they possibly could. There was, uh, There's an industrial town in the north of England that's pretty much on the border of Scotland. Uh-huh. The most grey town you can possibly imagine. Okay. I mean, grey is the perfect description of it, not only from a colour, <laughs> but just the atmosphere right, and right, right. sadly personality of people that you would meet there. Right. But it could have been a lot worse. So I, did, I had a fair few projects based in London.
0: Were there any industries that you focused on specifically? No,
1: I had quite a broad range. I did things in retail and supermarkets to finance in London is Mm. obviously a big one. Some government work, some big pharma, quite a lot, quite a wide range, Uh, and that's kind of the the experience as a business analyst there as well. They try and give you as broad an experience as possible because it's. They know you're not bringing any kind of specialism there at that point, so it's all about the learning experience and the breadth rather than the depth.
0: Right, right, and the name of McKinsey doesn't hurt.
1: (laughs) No, it's definitely it's definitely helped since, Mm -hmm. and I can't imagine being a 21 year old and like it's difficult because that was my only real corporate experience before coming to business school. Yeah, I had a an internship in an accounting firm mm-hmm. for my first summer, which was, this is what I was saying, I did the grunt work, stuff nobody else wanted to do. Right, right. One of my favorite things was the 40-minute walk to, uh, it's called Company's House in London. It's where it's the place you go and file all these companies' accounts. And they thought a good use of my time was to do that, like on foot, in, in person, <laughs> which is great on like a nice summer's day in yeah. uh, in London, but was not a fantastic learning experience. But yeah, I mean, the, coming to business school, I kind of only knew the McKinsey way of mm-hmm. doing things. And yeah, for anyone that has had that experience and other experiences, it's a very different way of doing things. Right. You can say, even just the advisory relationship, you're, you're outside in, you're not living the day-to-day of these organizations.
0: right? And that does beg the question, you know, why the MBA for you at the time that you chose and also why across the world?
1: <laughs> Why mm-hmm. on the other side of the world? So they are actually quite related things. Okay. More so than they may seem. So maybe a year into my time at McKinsey, I think it was around that time, mm-hmm. I began to realize I the entrepreneurial spark that I knew I had was starting to be squashed mm. by these big, slow-moving companies <laughs> and our role to sort of advise them and never actually see that impact ever occur, because it right. could happen five, ten years in the future. And, and I knew that McKinsey was never going to give that to me either. They are starting to do a little bit of work advising startups, mm-hmm. but I also knew that I didn't really have the skill set for mm. that. I've been trained to deal with the C-suite of FTSE 100 companies. So right, right. I wasn't even equipped to advise startups. So when the, when the opportunity came up to, to do an MBA... That's really what I went for. Mm-hmm. I knew I was never going to be a McKinsey lifer. Yeah. I really didn't see the appeal of climbing up that, um, that corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. So I knew that coming out to California in particular and taking two years out to, to learn the skills needed to be a, an advisor to entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. but also just taking a step back to sort of scope out the landscape of what that would even look like. Of course. It started to seem like a bit of a no-brainer for me. hmm Especially after two years at McKinsey being just a particularly intense experience. I couldn't have maintained that for much longer without taking a decent amount of time off. Right. So I thought rather than just like a one meet one month break over the summer, just take a two year holiday to California. <laughs> that,
0: that seems like uh A reasonable upgrade. Was Silicon Valley part of the draw, I imagine? Absolutely.
1: Okay. I only applied to California-based schools. Makes sense. Partly because of the weather, but also (laughs) just knowing that the access to
0: entrepreneurship at scale was what I was going for. You know, I heard an interesting thing that you said just a bit ago about impact. And one of the things I think hard about when I talk to and interview entrepreneurs is what drove them or what drives them towards entrepreneurship, right? Now, luckily, nobody at Haas that I've talked to has said money, which is <laughs> the absolute worst reason ever. <laughs> A lot of them talk about problem solving, mm. right? And to that respect, impact is actually, having an impact is something, it sounds like that you crave, and that's yeah. not what management consulting can provide as much of. Uh, and that's uh, this is actually, I've talked to, you know, we've had plenty of consultants on the podcast. And <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. And that is the number one reason why they shipped away from, from consulting. Even one of my buddies, he he was a consultant for the past 10 years. And, you know, his pitch to move into investment banking during recruiting season was aside from the hours, obviously, we just ignore that. But his pitch was that, you know, consulting is he felt like it was on the back end of the transaction, mm. right? Post-transaction, you're trying to figure out how to integrate what yep. the banker said, all the synergies that you're supposed to capture. Like yes. how, you, that's that's the consultant's job is coming afterwards. Whereas uh, he felt like banking for himself was on the forefront of the mm. transaction, right? Trying to- f- Making happen. Making it happen. He felt like that could have a bigger impact. And that's the exact word that he used as well. And so the question I really have to ask you is, you know, and what areas of impact are you most interested in? Do you have an idea, and you don't have to, but I'm yeah, just curious.
1: no, I. So I resonate strongly with everything you've just said. I still believe management consultants have impact. It's a lot harder to measure, especially when you're doing big strategy pieces. Mm-hmm. But I do believe they still have value in the world. No, I, That's, I agree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think the. The conversations I have with consultants around here at Haas and elsewhere that have left that is because they want, they need the impact to be more tangible for them. Mm. They need to see the impact that they're having right. on the world. And I think that's particularly true of entrepreneurs. Mm. So really the, well, a part of the founding story for LifeWork that company I founded about a year ago was from experiencing a problem myself mm-hmm realizing that the problem existed at scale and having the entrepreneur's mindset to say, you know what, rather than just address this problem for myself, I'm driven to address it at scale. Mm. And I think impact for me is addressing a problem at scale. Mm. So that was the ability to be a remote freelancer Mm -hmm. in a sustainable fashion. Like that's the problem that I hit. So I came... I came fairly directly from McKinsey to business school. Mm-hmm. But I knew that while I was here, I wanted to build a freelance consultant career for myself. Mm. If I could do that, and it, it comes back to the original ideas, I wanted to be an advisor to startups. Okay, So if I can come here, I can start to build my own I mean, independent business, mm-hmm. if there's a freelancer you are. Like, throughout those two years, rather than learning everything and then starting it at the end, Right, right. then that put me in the best position to stay here and continue having that life that I wanted to have. Yeah. And I arrived and in the first month even, it was really clear how difficult it is to get off the ground <laughs> as a new freelancer, certainly in the world that I was dealing with. But
0: yeah.
1: it's a joke, but you have to know like accounting and finance, yeah. sales, marketing, some legal stuff. You basically need to have an MBA right. to be able to become a, become a freelancer right and and that's crazy.
0: An advisor, a freelance advisor. Well,
1: any kind of freelancer. Mm. Like I was at, I'm in the most fortunate position coming from a business background and being in this environment here, right. But if you want to be a freelance software developer,, say, yeah. you still need to have all of those business expertise, right? Because you have to build up your own independent brand, your own independent business
0: in your book of business, right?
1: Yeah. And like no one's teaching that, right? No one's teaching those skills. But we're expecting freelancers to have them. Mm-hmm. So there's a real mismatch in just thinking society or generally. Mm-hmm. And so I realized like, if I was struggling this much with this stuff and I'm in the most fortunate position to be dealing with, with, with it, then wow, this is going to be a problem. Yeah. And yeah, I started digging into it. There were 57 million freelancers in the US right. in 2017 when I got here. Over a quarter of them churned that year. So sort of had to go back to employment because they couldn't make freelancing work right. for whatever reason. And crazy high number of people. Yeah, And so that was the moment for me that I transferred from, oh, this is going to be difficult. Like I have a problem that I am going to have to solve for myself mm-hmm. to give myself the career that I want to... Freelancing has a problem mm-hmm. that I want to solve to have this impact for a huge number of people.
0: What was the biggest pain point for freelancers?
1: aside from having a knowledge base? yeah. So the biggest one that comes up time and time again, and I've must have spoken to over 100 freelancers by this point, is income insecurity. Mm. So the idea that you don't know whether you'll have two clients or 10 clients next month, mm-hmm. and that uncertainty around your income makes it impossible to have a mortgage or securely raise a family. Right. All these other things are like, we live in a world that's kind of based around a stable monthly income. Yes. Like the idea of subscription services. And I mean, your mortgage is a standard monthly paycheck and all these other things that expect stability in outgoings. Right. And for people that don't have stability in income, that becomes an extremely stressful and problematic existence to be living. Hmm. And it's also a really, really hard problem to overcome. Right. Like that's why it's, People believe that it's just inherent to freelancing, is because there is no solution right now that enables flexibility, mm-hmm. which is obviously why people become freelancers yeah. in the first place, but also provides security. Mm. People see that as a trade-off,
0: right? It's, and they
1: see it as mutually exclusive. Exactly, mm. and that's the myth that we hope to break with
0: Lifework. Do you mind sharing some, I guess, some uh, ideas or what you envision? To make it not mutually exclusive, <laughs> yeah. So that vision
1: is the right word, and we've—it's fair to say that we've come at this from a vision, vision-centric perspective, mm-hmm. because we saw the big problem and we knew that it would take a big solution to solve. Right. And for us, that's employing freelancers to give them the security of a monthly paycheck, benefits, health care—the the big one for freelancers—while allowing them to maintain complete autonomy. Over how they work, mm-hmm. so they keep the flexibility of remote freelancing, but we provide the security through the sort of traditional existing mechanism of right. employment. So, do you are they do they need to guarantee a certain number of hours?
0: Is that the idea?
1: That's going to be the core competency for us mm-hmm. when we get to that phase. Mm-hmm. It becomes a question of supply and demand, mm-hmm. like the demand for work from these people and the supply, like the number of freelancers that we want to provide the security for right and beyond that a question of sort of risk management for us right as, right. as the platform how do we balance those two things to ensure that we don't provide too much security yeah as in, we don't employ a thousand freelancers on day one right. when we can't guarantee that amount of work coming right. through the door that's gonna be the biggest the biggest area we have to solve for for to make the
0: business mm-hmm. side of things work you know I, I found Your idea and the project very interesting from the get-go because when I started school, actually before I even started school, I was trying to envision what the future of work will be like. I mean, this has been a big question that Mm -hmm. even, uh, there was a White House study on this a couple of years ago, how people crave relatively less and less stability of sorts uh, of the nine to five. By stability, I mean that. And they crave more autonomy. Mm They create more flexibility. And there was one more. Typically, <laughs> I did the research, like meaning and purpose. Yes. And, and having, having meaning. Yep. And when I you know, looked at Uber at the time as a platform, regardless of what people think of the company, I thought you know, they really kind of spearheaded this idea that you could drive whenever you want, however many hours you want. Sure, it's not, you're not making consulting pay, but even at minimum wage pay, it's still a better option than working at McDonald's. Right. Because McDonald's, yes. you're strapped to clocking in, clocking out, the schedule that somebody else makes, and you don't feel that autonomy. You don't feel the flexibility, obviously. And more, most importantly, you actually don't feel any meaning. And surprisingly, you know, I, I remember interviewing every single Uber Lyft driver that mm-hmm. I got yeah. into. Everyone should do that, by the
1: way. If they, if they don't, <laughs> just
0: ask your Uber drivers about their lives. Yeah, I just, I just started a conversation with them. Yeah. Just, just asking, you know, do you, do you enjoy driving? And surprisingly, most of the people said Yes because they got to meet new people. Yeah, sure, picking up drunk people, throwing up is not the <laughs> funnest thing in the world, but no. you do meet interesting people, depending on where you are. I think that also varies, right? When you're in LA, you meet a lot of um, aspiring actors or <laughs> uh, movie execs mm-hmm. or people in finance, and you have really interesting conversations with them, as I've had with them. And they, they feel a sense of community that they're providing something of value to the community, right? that honestly wasn't there before. So to that point, but that's that's just one specific task, right? One specific job. Are there any areas of tasks or jobs that you guys are thinking of focusing on to start? Because I, I can't imagine, you know, everything on Sun would be a good strategy. No, <laughs> it's a very good point. I and mean, possibly the first question
1: that most investors ask when we speak okay. to them. It's worth saying our scope is remote freelancing, mm-hmm. which in itself is limited to. What most people would consider white-collar professional work. Okay. So anything that can be done with a laptop and an internet connection, sort of the definition of remote. Right. And that covers a, still a very broad range of, of professions. Right. Anything legal, consulting, software development, graphic design, writing, photography in some ways falls under that. There's a very wide range.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We ultimately want to serve everybody. But you're right, starting somewhere is a wiser strategy. Mm. The way that we're building the system, so we're saying we aren't going to be able to run the employment platform that we envisage for at least two or three years, mm-hmm. we imagine. it. I say, it's a, such a big problem that it takes scale. That's one of the necessary components mm-hmm. for it to be effective. Mm-hmm. So right now we're building up to that with a series of other services that, are applicable to pretty much any remote freelancer. Mm. We're starting off with a payment solution that helps them get paid faster. Mm-hmm. But we'll also do things like helping them with file their taxes and financial planning mm. and just monitoring their different clients in a CRM system. Like these are the things that will help improve their lives. Mm-hmm. All of those things have broad appeal. Mm-hmm. Like the employment system will have broad appeal. So our thinking is we, will, we won't be too focused for the first couple of years. Well, we have a system that applies broadly. We will take anybody that's interested, mm-hmm. and it's worth saying it's also very difficult to target any particular group through our marketing. Mm. Freelancers are inherently a distributed group; yeah. they are impossible to track down. Right? Uh, I've got stories of trying to trying to track them down, which uh, mm-hmm. are often fruitless. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so there's little little purpose in narrowing to begin with. Mm-hmm. But that will that will ultimately put us in a really great position. So because we will have hopefully a large network of freelancers using our platform just to support their lives. Right. Logging in every day just to keep track of their career in a lot right. of ways. Like the HR platform for freelancers yeah. is a good way of thinking about it. And so that we can then pick from that group which types of work look to be the most promising. Right as soon as we get to employment that's that's where we suddenly have a reason to narrow right because we will be sourcing work from them doing the business of like going out to these enterprises saying look we got some great people they can do work for you we can't go to every single client out there and say we can do everything for you yeah that's where it becomes dumb right and so we don't have to make a call on that now we've got Mm -hmm. some hypotheses but we can wait and see which people are the most successful within our platform Mm mm-hmm which people... Because these are freelancers that have existing client relationships. Okay. And we'll be able to see who their clients are. I see. And so we can say, okay, which types of work are working with clients that are most accessible for us mm. to expand within? And so...
0: I think you you touched on a really important point is that you want to first solve for existing freelancers that do have a relatively consistent book of work, mm-hmm. a better solution for consistent pay, for healthcare coverage, uh, accounting, you mm-hmm. know, things that really these freelancers don't want to deal with. I was just reading about an example of a company that not, they weren't servicing freelancers, but they were doing something similar where they are basically making the business side, the, the back end, the back office operations much easier mm-hmm. for, for a certain group of people. And this... Um, Finally, understand what life work is about now a little bit better. Yeah, it's a complicated one to explain. <laughs> I mean, just tell people it's it's a back office for freelancers. I think it'll be HR and back office, right? With support.
1: That's the one that seems to be getting the most traction. Yeah, we've toyed with L- the low hanging fruit operating system for <laughs> freelancers. Mm-hmm. That often makes more sense when we're talking to freelancers themselves, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially if they are career freelancers and forget what it's ever like to have an HR department. Right. The idea because it. It's more technically similar to an operating system. Right, It's a platform. It'll combine a lot of different services and be the, the one portal that you log into every day right. to see everything. But I think you're right. The analogy to an HR department or like the back office support mm-hmm. for whatever you're doing is perfect because there are all of these roles that people in the
0: front lines don't want to have to be dealing yeah, with. And yeah. It doesn't make sense for them to be dealing right. with. It's, and it's, They're not good at it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, That's what we're trying to do. So I want to ask a tough question. You know, with the recent Upwork IPO Mm -hmm. last year yes, and the pending Fiverr IPO this year, how does LifeWork differentiate from Upwork or Fiverr? It really comes down to
1: our freelancer-first focus. So both of those companies... And Upwork's a bit funny, so I'll get into that. But both of those companies operate with a marketplace model. Mm -hmm. And a marketplace that is currently that currently has massive oversupply of freelancers. Mm. So I think over the last five, maybe 10 years say, individuals, freelancers have realized the benefits of freelancing to them Mm -hmm. at a faster rate than enterprises have realized the benefits of using freelancers to getting work done Mm. for them. So right now we're in a place there's huge oversupply. And so Upwork is accepting like less than 5% of its new freelancer requests Mm -hmm. that they get. Because there's just so many people and there's not enough work. But in a marketplace, that leads to sort of a race to the bottom for the freelancers that are competing for the work that's posted. And so I've run experiments on there where I've posted fake jobs and I've seen the kind of, not only the response that it gets, because you post a job and then you get, say, 100 people come back to you saying, I will do it for this amount of money and like these are all my credentials. Yeah. You see that? And then I would respond to maybe not the entire first wave, but everyone that seemed credible, I'd respond to. Yeah, And I was testing their willingness to undercut themselves. Huh. And I found people that were willing to work for a quarter of their originally stated rate wow. on there. So people will say, I don't know,
0: I'll do this for $100 an hour. Because, because the competition is so fierce. Because
1: the competition is so fierce.
0: I know exactly what you're talking about. Even from a business end. I mean, the reason I bring up Upwork... And and Fiverr is is as an entrepreneur for my own businesses. I've been using it for yes before Upwork was Upwork or USBO Desk mm-hmm. right Yeah. or uh, Elance mm-hmm. right. And I would literally have to. I mean, I, I've gotten the system down where because as a business, time is money, yeah. right? I don't have time to test out different. Freelancers to see who is going to be the best. So what I'll do typically is literally send out the same project to five different people and see mm-hmm. who returns the best results and I'll continue working with that person. But there's no consistency to it yeah. because half the time, you know, I, d- I just don't know who these people are and they might disappear because they also don't feel any security. It's like a two-sided problem where yeah. I don't have any security with who I'm working with. They don't have any security of pay or consistency of projects. Yeah. And that is actually a huge gap. I'm starting to realize it now. Because this whole time, I was like, what is the gap? <laughs> but I totally get it now. There's a real lack of trust at the heart of it. Yeah. Which is bizarre in a in a world that was originally formed around personal relationships. Let me ask you this. Do you intend to focus solely on, say, MBAs? Like MBA graduates? What were people with certain levels of accreditation? Oh, no. Okay.
1: There's... And this starts to get into the nitty-gritty of... And we don't have to. Successful we, we, platform. we don't have to. I
0: don't want to expose too much of the... the no, 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 sauce no. I,
1: <laughs> so one of, one of the things about LifeWork is we are we're building it in a fully transparent way. Mm, so okay. one of our core values is transparency. Mm-hmm. And you start to see it, there's... Um, I think Buffer is probably the best example of this at the moment. And Joel Gascoigne, f- fellow Brit, is the CEO there. And he makes his monthly financial statements public. Right. P- Post them on Twitter. And it has very few things as sort of secret sauce to the organization. Right. And there's huge benefits to doing that. And we really want to internalize that from the very start of work. Right. So I'm always happy to share what is going to make us a success because... Mm-hmm. We live in a world where like IP doesn't stay secret no, it does not. for that long. And IP is no real barrier to entry
0: mm-hmm.
1: right now. And if Google wanted to do this, they would go and do it tomorrow. Yeah. They've got smart people, smarter than me, I'm sure, and would figure this out. Like the reason they were just doing it is because it's really damn hard to do it. Yeah. And doesn't seem like that attractive proposition for anyone to go into right now. Right. Take someone that's a little bit crazy and... And stable to go after it yeah. myself. And so, yeah, we're going to share everything. Yeah. I'm genuinely considering writing a blueprint for this business and putting it on Medium. Because right. if I get feedback on that and I couldn't prove that blueprint, like, that only serves me. Yep. Like, there, of course, like, there will be competitors that follow us. Yep. As soon as we start proving this works, people will follow. And so it doesn't make sense to hold on to anything.
0: Right. I'm a firm believer that you should never hoard your ideas as well. There is this uh, this book that uh, that I used to commonly share with uh, entrepreneurs that are starting out. It was a design book. It's just escaping me right now, but one of the pages has this girl, traditional school kid, just kind of doing their homework or doing their quiz. And they're just kind of covering their answers, you mm-hmm. know. And it it just goes to show that you know there's no point hoarding out your ideas, people. I think people nowadays are slowly starting to realize that ideas are dime a diamond dozen, literally. yeah, It's all in the execution. And in the execution, part of that is your drive and your passion, the, your why as to why you're doing it. Yeah. The whole start with why, right? And that's something that's not easily copied. Yeah. <laughs> and so I would always, me personally, like even have these crazy ideas, because you know, as an entrepreneur, we're always, always looking for problems to solve. I share them. And when I see someone else a year or two later executing on it, it makes me happy yeah. because then just validates it. Oh, that was a good idea. I have good ideas. Yes. <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah. And they will eventually monetize themselves. Yeah. You have a reputation for having good ideas and that's what's going to matter more.
0: Exactly. In this future
1: world. And it, it comes back to the question of autonomy, flexibility and meaning yeah. as well. If like we've all worked in organizations that there seem to be secrets at the yeah. top. And you're in your own little hamster wheel, and it's unclear how you're contributing to to what's going on in the world. Right. So if you really want to empower people, share that with them, include <laughs> them in that decision making as much
0: as you can. Let me ask you one more question about this. Actually, is you know we touched upon autonomy and flexibility. Obviously, it's pretty apparent. But how do you do? You intend to tackle this meaning portion? Like, how would life work? Kind of provide people with more meaning. Freelancing. It's a really good question. There's a certain population
1: that find meaning through the work they do Mm -hmm. and so i think by enabling them to focus purely on that Mm -hmm. rather than all of this business stuff that surrounds it Mm. that we enable them to focus more on that meaning i like that that makes a lot of sense (laughs) (laughs) right and beyond that if we can we facilitate them to be more efficient in their work yeah So they currently spend 10 hours a week doing all this admin and we take that away. Right. That's 10 hours that they can put into creative work. Yeah. Like applying these skills in ways that they personally find meaning. Because there's some people that will never find meaning in the work that they do. Right, right. But if we free them up to explore their own personal passions, that's only a good thing.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. David, um, you're about to graduate. Any parting words of wisdom for prospective students or first year MBA students?
1: I think I'd say to any any student, anywhere, Mm -hmm. that is in close proximity to a business school, it is the perfect time to start something. Mm. So you can tell from what I've said, I didn't come here with this idea, or certainly not with the notion of working on it Mm -hmm. while I was here. And it was an advisor that pushed me in the first month that I was here, said, okay, you're doing this. This is what you got to do to start proving it. I was like, wow, okay, really? <laughs> that, that's not what I'm here for. Yeah. So I ignored him for a couple of months and then finally gave in. And it's, it has defined my MBA program. Like, absolutely, you can't be this committed to something. Like, you have to be this committed to make it work. Right. And with that level of commitment, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. Right. But I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Even if life work doesn't end up working out, there is no better environment to be doing that in with the support of your classmates in the community. And you're practically in an incubator for the resources you have available to you, yeah. the networks on hand, the financial resources that often universities are looking to provide, that are looking to develop that sense of innovation within their campus. So if you've got that little inkling in your mind, just go for it. I,
0: you will not regret it. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Dave. Likewise, thank you, Sean. Thank you for tuning in today. My aim is to bring the Haas community closer together through your stories. We're always looking for Haasies willing to share their stories and experiences so that we can give you more insights into the different programs, different careers, and ultimately different perspectives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please feel free to email me for suggestions on how I can improve this podcast or if you have any recommendations on people or content you'd like to hear. My email is reachshawn at berkeley.edu. That's spelled R E A C H. S-E-A-N at berkeley.edu.